so I have to begin with something that uh, almost nobody knows about me, huh? Oh, have to think about that for a minute. Um, oh, here's one. So how many of you like baseball? How many of you are pretty good at baseball? Okay. Well, I played varsity baseball in eighth grade. Uh, I should say I sat the bench for varsity baseball in eighth grade. But at least I was on the team, so... That is that. Um, so it's really great to be here. How many of you are excited? How many of you are awake? Okay. You might be awake more in a minute. So I see uh, this the lovely podium. This is one of those little anorexic podiums. Uh, I'm a pulpit pounder occasionally. Uh, a Calvinistic pulpit pounder. I was in England one time and there was one of these. Well, that was actually more anorexic than this. I've actually spoken sometimes with these music stands. You ever seen how just small and dainty and delicate some of these music stands are? One time I was just wasn't thinking and I hit it and the whole thing just comes flying. So this is a warning for those of you close by. You might need to uh, check that. Well, great to see all of you. Um, <clears throat> so my topic this morning, first topic, is uh, the cultural mandate and the kingdom of God, this is one of those big, sweeping worldview topics. If you listen to this and the Holy Spirit opens up your heart and you act on this truth, your life will be transformed and you will be acting differently 30 years from now than you would have acted had you never heard this and acted on it. The cultural mandate and uh, the kingdom of God. Um, I'm taking uh, my title as an answer basically to two questions. Perhaps you've seen the American game show Jeopardy. Anybody here ever watch Jeopardy? The game show host provides the answers and the contestants have to provide the questions. Well, the answers to my talk are the cultural mandate and the kingdom of God. The title. So the question to which number one is the answer is, what is man's God-appointed work in the world? The answer is the cultural mandate. The question to which number two is the answer is, what is God's self-chosen work in the world? Man's work in the world is the cultural mandate. God's work in the world is his kingdom. That's basically what you need to know. The rest of this talk is an elaboration on what I just said. Now, you may have noticed I provided their outlines. Do you have the outline that I have? Notice it's an interactive outline. You know what interactive means? It means you need to write on it. If you have questions, write the questions down. You need to write on this because if you write on it, rather than my simply providing a PowerPoint, nothing wrong with PowerPoint, but as Dr. Boot likes to say, all of my points are powerful. But if you write on it, you probably will keep it. If you invest in this outline, maybe 30 years from now, you'll pull it out. Say, man, I remember that at that lovely place when I was back and young and handsome and beautiful and I'm old and ugly and fat. But man, I remember that. These really, really great speakers. So invest in this outline, if you will. So let's start, speaking of the cultural mandate, with man's work. Uh, When we come of age, a question often plagues the mind of most serious people. Why are we here? I mean, why are we on earth? 
Why did God put us here? We aren't left in the dark about these weighty questions. God tells us in his word, and he tells us right at the beginning, right at the record of creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we encounter creational norms. You may want to write that down. Creational norms. God's laws built into the very structure of the universe by which it operates. For example, creational norms, the distinction between the creator and his creation. Humans created Imago Dei, as we heard last night, the image of God. A man and a woman, equal before God, none inferior to the other, but created with differences to complement one another. These and other creational norms resemble the operating system of a computer or a smartphone. If you try to bypass the operating system, the device won't work, or else it breaks down. Well, guess what? The same is true of the universe, what I like to call the cosmos, God's creation. If you violate his pre-installed creational norms, things start breaking. Things start breaking. Now, it's important to understand this fact of creational norms because we live in an age that assumes a constructivist, a constructivist view of reality. Let me explain. Christians know that reality is a given. In fact, we could say it's a God-given. God created the world the way that it is, though he made it originally without sin. And he created the way for us to live in this world. But a constructivist views reality quite differently. He holds the world simply a mass of clay, as it were, and man has to create his own reality from that mass. The world doesn't come with pre-installed software, according to constructivists. We have to make our own world. This really means that in the end, man is the creator. The world got here by purposeless evolution, and man supplies the purpose. Man is a reality creator. Man decides what the rules are. Man decides what God, if there is a God, is allowed to do. Man decides what man is. Man decides what reality is. This constructivist view is in radical distinction to the Christian view. The Christian view starts with creational norms laid out at the very beginning of the Bible. The creational norm pertinent to our topic today is found in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I'm going to read it for you. You may want to write down that and read it more carefully for yourself. Then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them, he means male and female, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man, male and female, in his image, and then he gave them a task. That task is to exercise dominion over the rest of creation under God's authority. Theologians have called this the cultural mandate, or it could be called the dominion commission, same thing. The cultural mandate, remember, is the answer to the question, what is man's God-appointed work in the world? Let's unpack that cultural mandate, then we'll get to the kingdom of God briefly. 
Before we address the cultural mandate, we need to understand what culture is. It's kind of one of those words we loosely use, culture, I appreciate culture, let's go out into the culture. But we need to specify what culture is. Here's a great way to understand that distinction. Creation is what God makes, culture is what we make. Yeah, that's one you could write down, that's quotable. I didn't say it originally, John Frame said it, the theologian. Uh, Creation is what God makes, culture is what we make. Culture is different from creation. Its distinctive trait is the human use of God's creation for man's benefit. Culture is what we get when man intentionally employs creation for beneficial divine purposes. A tomato isn't an instance of culture, but a pizza is. Think with me here. Oxygen is not an example of culture, but an oxygen mask is. King David is not defined as culture. He was created by God. But Michelangelo's famous sculpture, King David from about 1504, is culture. So, you go mathematically, an equation. Creation plus man's beneficial interaction with it equals culture. Now, as we walk in this world, we constantly encounter and almost always simultaneously both creation and culture. I mean, you see it right here if you were to look out the window. Don't look out the window. Look out there and see all sorts of wonderful creation. And then then you see culture, tents. I mean, both of them, right there. Isn't that remarkable? We confront pecan trees and cumulus clouds, and the Canadian Rockies, and rainstorms, and fox terriers, and cornstalks, and in my home state of California, redwoods, and beaches, and most significant of all, other human beings created in God's image. We humans live within this creation that we experience, and we make culture. We make superhighways and smartphones, and dog training schools, and political elections, and pecan pie, and Michelangelo's David and jackhammers and shotguns and hearing aids. Man acts on God's creation and produces culture. Now, next point on your outline you probably noticed. Culture is inescapable. Culture is inescapable. The urge to create culture is woven into man's very nature. It's a creational norm. Man can't be man without creating culture. Man is, by his nature, a culture creator. Give him wooden sticks and animal skin, and he'll make a drum and rhythm. Give him pigment and hair and a flat surface, and he'll make brushes and start painting. Give him sharp metal and trees, and he'll make a log cabin. Allow him to develop sophisticated tools and technology, and he'll make an iPhone, a four-movement musical symphony, and a thermonuclear warhead. Man is a cultural creature. God made him that way. Man can't create reality, but he can and must create culture within that God-given reality. Now, when man sinned in Eden, this is a vital point to understand. When man sinned in Eden, he didn't give up creating culture. He simply perverted the gift of culture into a tool for his own rebellion against God. So the issue is never whether man will make culture. The issue is what kind of man will create culture and what kind of culture man will create. Now, Romans 1 teaches there are covenant keepers and covenant breakers. There's no third category. Covenant keepers tend to produce covenant-keeping culture. 
In other words, <clears throat> uh, they tend to act in their world for the glory of God, though, of course, we never do it perfectly. By contrast, covenant breakers are inclined to produce covenant breaking culture. This doesn't mean unbelievers can never produce a culture that brings glory to God, but that's not their basic impulse. Therefore, their tendency will always be to defy God in producing culture. The unbelieving software architect might create an app that helps grocery shoppers, and that's great. But he'll also perhaps use his computer to view pornography and send lewd messages and encourage his fellow employees to commit covetousness. The covenant-keeping software architect uses technology quite differently. There's always culture of some kind. Culture is inescapable. It's simply used for religiously and ethically different purposes by covenant keepers than it is by covenant breakers. Second, therefore, God created man to create culture for his glory. I'm answering this question. Why are you here? And I'm telling you. To create culture for the glory of God. Adam and Eve weren't created merely to fellowship with God. That's a mistaken assumption that very pious Christians often make. Now they know that God created man and woman to share in the fellowship of the Trinity. Jesus says that in John chapter 17 in his prayer. That's the great vertical dimension of their existence. But we can't stop there. There is also the horizontal dimension. They were created to exercise dominion over the rest of creation, to serve as God's stewards in the earth, to be God's vicegerents or vice regents. That's another metaphor we could use. Deputy. Deputy. God deputized man to steward the rest of his creation. We're therefore God's royal representatives. We mediate God's will to the rest of creation. That's man, male and female, calling. Dominion or stewardship over creation is man and woman's chief earthly calling. That's the chief reason we're here. Man's vertical calling is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the language, of course, some of you know of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But our chief horizontal calling is to subdue the earth for the glory of God. Now, think about this. The first act of dominion that God imposed on Adam was naming the animals. Naming the animals. Now, naming in modern culture has lost its earlier significance. To name, actually, is to impose one's authority. Guess what? You didn't get to choose your name. Your parents, almost certainly, your parents got to choose your name for you. They imposed their authority in that way. Parents alone generally name their children because God has established them as a subordinate authority in children's lives. If, if Adam and Eve were to steward the animals, they needed to call them something. So to act as God's governing image bearer, Adam named the animals. That was his first act of godly dominion. Now, this brings up a fundamental point. Think of this. Man isn't called to leave creation as it is. Some environmentalists hold that view, and it's fundamentally wrong. You'll remember that when God finished creation day six, he pronounced all of his creation very good. There is no defect in creation originally made. But that doesn't mean creation was to be static. That is, never to change. Creation was meant to be dynamic. Man was tasked with interacting with creation, adding his God-given creativity, his God-given ingenuity to improve it. I've heard from last night a number of your artists here. How many artists do we have here? Oh, come on. There's got to be at least one or two artists. 
There you go. That's, that's a work of art. Sure. That's a prime example. Not the only one, but a prime example. Creation as it came from God's hand was very good, but it wasn't everything that God intended it to be. In short, creation isn't sufficient. God wants culture too. Just as man himself was to grow and mature in devotion and obedience to God, so creation itself was to grow and to mature under man's guidance. God didn't create fruit trees simply for man to admire the fruit. Oh my, isn't that a lovely fruit? The fruit from all but one tree was there to be eaten. Horses weren't simply to be contemplated. Oh, what a mighty animal that is. What a majestic animal. No, they're to be used for human transport. Water wasn't to be merely marveled over. It was to be used for consumption and cleaning and bathing. Creation, including man himself, wasn't to be static but dynamic. The cultural mandate, therefore, is an inescapably religious act. It was established by God, and it must operate under his authority. The idea that culture could be validly non-religious is a contradiction of terms. There can be no cultural neutrality. Every culture operates in terms of its cultivators' underlying religious assumptions. This is what uh, one particular theologian says, a cultural theologian. You might have heard, from, uh, heard of him. His name is Joseph Boot. The culture, sh- the culture shapers, he said, are tilling the minds of others with a specific worldview in mind. Culture, therefore, is religion externalized. Yeah, that's one you want to write down. Culture is religion externalized. The issue is always whose religion? Whose religion will be externalized in the world? The very notion that there could be cultural neutrality arises because of sin. So we have to ask ourselves, how does sin affect the cultural mandate? So God gives the cultural mandate to Adam and Eve, but sin enters in. How does that impact this cultural mandate? When Adam and Eve sinned, of course, they established themselves as independent rival authorities to God. They said implicitly, contrary to what we heard earlier this morning, my will be done on earth. That's essentially what they were saying. But they didn't lose their impulse to create culture. In fact, their first act after sinning was a cultural act to create fig leaves to hide the shame of their nakedness. Now, they had to pluck leaves to do this. They had to find a vine or some other natural twine to sew the figs into aprons. They had to arrange the leaves so that they could cover their bodies. Those are cultural acts, if there ever were any. These cultural acts were undertaken to cover their sin, quite literally. For the same reason, we shouldn't be surprised that culture was at the root of the first murder in human history, right? You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Let's think about that for a minute. Cain cultivated... See that word even in English, C-U-L-T, culture, cultivated. Cain cultivated the soil while Abel tended the sheep. Both of these are cultural acts. When God accepted Abel's offering of sheep, but not Cain's offering of plants, then God rejected Cain's sacrifice. In envy, of course, Cain murdered his brother. Over what? Over the products of culture. Therefore, sin doesn't eliminate the cultural mandate. It only perverts the cultural mandate. So, does this mean God has abandoned the cultural mandate for the godly? No. In Genesis 9, 1 through 4, after the universal flood, God restated to Noah this mandate he first gave in Eden. 
Sin, however, did introduce two modifications. First, because of sin, man would suffer the hardships posed by creation under the curse. Man's work would be tiresome. The woman's childbearing would be painful. The cultural mandate would be hard work. Therefore, and second, for the cultural mandate to be what God intended, man would have to be redeemed and cleansed from his sin. The first implied act of atonement in the Bible was when God made skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Now think about what God had to do. He had to shed an animal's blood to do this. Fig leaves wouldn't suffice to cover their shame. There had to be blood shedding. This cultural act of God, God himself acting culturally, pointed to the one final and enduring sacrifice, of course, of Jesus Christ. His blood shedding on the cross to take away the guilt and pollution of sin. Now, listen to this. When sinful man is redeemed, he's restored to his original place as God's deputy over creation. And that, my friends, is one of the main reasons, probably the fundamental reason for the atonement of Jesus Christ. Not simply to take you to heaven when you die. Oh, the thank God will be with the Lord forever and in the resurrection. It was to restore you and me when we trust in Christ to this place of godly dominion, the cultural mandate in the earth. To be what we were originally intended to be as humans, created originally in the Garden of Eden. And that's why God reissued his commission to Noah and his descendants. God didn't abandon his cultural plan for the earth. He reissued it to a newly redeemed people. In fact, this essentially is what we call today the Great Commission. That's what the Great Commission is. It's the reissuing of the cultural mandate and the redemptive era of life. That's essentially what it is. You read the Great Commission in the New Testament Gospels, like Matthew chapter 18. We, as the Lord's disciples, are called in turn to disciple the nations in the good news of Jesus Christ. Not just individuals, but nations. This is our calling as God's people, washed in the Lord's blood. We're his dominion people, our Lord's new humanity. Now, before I get to the kingdom, I want to get to this next point, which is the antithesis, because this is just fundamental. This new humanity has introduced uh, a new cultural situation. The earth is now populated by two kinds of humans, both of them created in God's image, both committed to the cultural mandate. There are creator worshipers and there are creature worshipers. That's Paul's language in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Now, notice, we still, both of us, still live on one earth, but two kinds of people exert cultural influence on this one planet. This altered situation is the conflict that we encounter everywhere we look every day of our lives the godly and the ungodly both bearing within themselves this dominion impulse this conflict is often called the antithesis each one of us relentlessly cultivating the earth the righteous for god's glory and the unrighteous for man's glory now let's get a little more concrete here The antithesis is played out in the great theater of life in every dimension. In education, the uh, God-honoring Christian schools and homeschools versus secular and humanistic state schools. In art, the 
God-honoring painting of Michelangelo versus the God-defying painting of Picasso. In music, the virtuous music of Bach versus the rebellious music of Lady Gaga, who's no lady. Invocation, the covenantal model of employer-employee relation versus the management union model of Marxism. In sports, the God-glorifying play of Eric Little versus the man-glorifying play of Muhammad Ali. In politics, decentralized liberty under law versus centralized messianic statism. In child-rearing, biblical wisdom from Proverbs versus humanistic wisdom from secular child psychologists. In economics, virtuous free markets versus vicious messianic interventionism. Even, even in the church, biblical spirit-filled faith versus accommodationist existential religion. And in every other sphere I could name across the entire spectrum of life, you see this conflict, this antithesis. Uh, The apologist uh, Cornelius Van Til writes, there can be no appeasement between those who presuppose in all their thought the sovereign God and those who presuppose in all their thought the would-be sovereign man. There can be no other point of contact between them than that of a head-on collision. Pretty strong language, isn't it? But he's right. A head-on collision. The great human conflicts are always the conflicts between creator worshipers and creature worshipers over how each of them will exercise dominion in the earth. How they will create culture. These two forms of culture, of course, look radically different when allowed to pursue their own inner principles. That's why the music of Wagner is diametrically or dramatically different from the music of Bach. That's why the paintings of Picasso are instantly distinguishable from those of Michelangelo. Why the campus of the University of Toronto would never be confused with that of the New Runner Academy, which I hope some of you will attend, and so on. When given the chance, creation worshipers create a culture vastly different from creator worshipers. Yes. The cultural mandate is the answer to the question, what is man's God-appointed work in the world? It is your work, and it is mine. I'm going to close this section with a very powerful quote. Listen to this. So what's the goal of all this, this this cultural mandate? Uh, Culture... Henry Meter writes, is the execution of this divinely imposed mandate. In his cultural task, man is to take the raw materials of this universe and subdue them, make them serve his purpose, and bring them to nobler and higher levels, thus bringing out the possibilities that are hidden in nature. When thus developed, man is to lay his entire cultural product, the whole of creation, at the feet of him, who is king of man and of nature, in whose image man and all things are created. Isn't that beautiful? That at the end of human history, Christians, the people of God, all will cultivate this culture, all of this cultural work, and then take those products, as it were, and put them at the feet of Jesus Christ and said, we have tried to be faithful, despite our sin, have tried to be faithful in developing this culture. And it all belongs to you, the king. Speaking of the king, let's move to the next and final point. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, the question, that's the answer, kingdom. The question is, what is God's self-chosen work in the world? The kingdom, the kingdom of God, is his work in the world in which we participate. Now, does anybody know what the Greek word for kingdom is in the New Testament? 
What was it? Basileia, Basileia, right. It's used quite a bit. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, according to Mark chapter 1. Now, it began in the Old Testament. Read, for example, in Psalm 99.1, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Same thing, Psalm 93. A lot of these royal psalms, I don't have time to go into, but read the royal psalms. Amazing about the universal kinghood of God, kingdom of God. <coughs> Kingdom is more a statement about God than about anything else. It's not primarily a location or a realm, but a person's being. God is the king. The kingdom of God and the kingship of his son, Jesus Christ, are huge themes in the Bible. In fact, I would say the very heart of the Bible is the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God mean? Well, as it's used by Christians today, it's sort of vague. It can have sort of different meanings. Is the kingdom this world or in this world? Is it the Jewish nation? Is it a Jewish kingdom? Is the kingdom identical to the church? Is the kingdom just all Christians, all saved people? Is it the future millennium when Jesus rules physically in Jerusalem? Or is it simply a heavenly kingdom not associated with the earth? In other words, is the kingdom of God only future and not present? In fact, none of those definitions is precisely correct. The kingdom of God, and this is one you may want to write down, Just never forget this. The kingdom of God just fundamentally means the reign of God. The kingdom of God means the reign, not R-A-I-N, R-E-I-G-N, the reign of God. The Bible depicts God as king over all. He rules in his heavenly court over both the heavens and the earth. He is the king. We're his subjects. Now, we believers are his willing subjects. Unbelievers are his unwilling subjects. But all of us are his subjects. So it's not so much a realm over which the king reigns as it is the reign itself. We might say that the kingdom is wherever the king is. The kingdom is wherever the king is. And since the king is everywhere, his kingdom is everywhere. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that all of his subjects obey him. There are many rebels in the kingdom, aren't there? A lot of rebels today. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's still his kingdom. And not their kingdom, and not Satan's kingdom. Jesus centered his earthly ministry on the kingdom of God. He declares that fact quite uh, explicitly from the very beginning. He went everywhere preaching the kingdom. But he also went everywhere expanding the kingdom. That is expanding the rule of God. Of course, God was already reigning, but sin was present too. Satan was a rival king. Satan was a pretend ruler, a pretend king. Jesus came to expel this false ruler. In fact, Jesus said so. That's why he said he came, to expel Satan and his work. Jesus was the most potent and concentrated form of the kingdom of God imaginable. Jesus Christ embodied the kingdom. If you've ever read the Gospels, you know that two things Jesus seemed to be doing all the time were healing sickness and casting out demons. And sometimes we scratch our heads. What? Does that mean we're supposed to be doing that? I mean, why talk so much about this? Why did Jesus do that so much? Why wasn't he just going around just preaching the gospel? People don't understand what the gospel is. He explicitly identifies these works as kingdom works. Why? Because Satan had enslaved the Jews to both sickness and demon possession. Well, Jesus came back to Jesus came to roll back the work of Satan. Two main ways he did this was by healing and exorcism at the time. So we can reverently say that Jesus Christ basically came to the world saying, I'm the new sheriff in town. 
That's essentially what Jesus Christ was saying. He was wearing the badge of the great Jehovah God, his Father. As we move through the pages of the New Testament, we discover that this rule wasn't meant to be limited to Jews. In Acts 2, for example, Peter declares in his sermon at Pentecost, at first Pentecost after the resurrection, the same Jesus whom the Jews had crucified had been resurrected and ascended to David's throne in heaven, from where Jesus now specifically rules. So I'd like to elaborate in the time remaining on the kingdom of God. Just three or four main points, and I will be done. <clears throat> If you have questions, and I hope you do, just be writing them down there for later. First, and this should be there, I think, on your outline, the goal of the kingdom is God's final comprehensive reign without any opposition. The kingdom of God brings all things progressively under the rule of Jesus Christ. We read about it in Philippians 2, don't we? Jesus Christ was crucified and died and rose again, and as a result, God exalted him so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's, by the way, the first great creed of the church. You know that, don't you? It's three words. It's two words elsewhere, but three words in English. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the first great confession, first great creed. This is simply to say that Jesus is king. Several times in the New Testament, we read that God has placed all things under Jesus' feet. Now, that was an ancient metaphor. You ever read that in the Bible? Uh, it was used in the Old Testament. Often when ancient kings would get a victory over a rival, they would symbolically put their foot on the neck or on the head of their rival. This showed they'd vanquished their enemy. Do you remember God's promise to our first parents in Genesis 3.15? Remember that? The woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent's seed. That's the same metaphor. The point is that when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, he took his throne. His work in history, through us, his people, is to subordinate his enemies. In other words, to expand his kingdom, his father's reign. Of course, this doesn't happen all at once. The Bible makes that clear, in, by the way, in Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, verse 8. God made Jesus king over all things, but his kingship has to work itself, his reign, progressively. Because people are still rebels. And creation still under a curse. And God's giving people a chance to repent under the preaching of the gospel. One day all the rebels will be eliminated and the curse of creation will be lifted. So I'm going to go to the second thing. Second, Christians have often unfortunately misdefined the kingdom. I want you to hear this. This has caused significant practical damage. Some believe that God is king, or Christ is king only of the Jews, but not of the Gentiles. But the book of Psalms and other places in the Old Testament, and certainly the New Testament, proves that isn't true. God is king over everyone and everything. The New Testament makes clear that Jesus rules over the Gentiles, the entire earth. Now others recognize that since he came to earth, Jesus rules over the Gentiles, but they believe he reigns only within the church, the institutional church. Yes, they would say, Andrew, Jesus is king of the church, but he allows, God allows Satan and unbelievers to rule rightly, correctly, rule outside the church in this particular age or, quote, dispensation. But the Bible nowhere teaches this. Jesus does rule in the church, but that's because he rules over all things. He's king both inside the church and outside the church. This uh, mistaken definition has serious implications. The people who hold it tend to believe that the church should be right with God, but they don't believe that society should or can 
be right with God in this present age. They believe they have to wait until the second coming for society to be right with God. But if Jesus is presently ruling, and if he is ruling over all the earth, we can expect every area of life to be brought into gradual conformity to his rule. His reign won't be postponed until the second coming. Though, of course, then it'll come in its fullness. His rule can't be limited to the church. Jesus Christ is ruling right now, and he's ruling everywhere right now. Third, this means, this means, personal salvation is not the central theme of the Christian message. Now, I said something very significant there, and I hope that you think about that. Personal salvation is not the central theme of the Christian message. The message of the gospel is addressed first to individuals, but the, and the gospel is man's only hope of salvation. But the Bible doesn't teach that individual salvation is the overarching theme of the Bible. The great theme of the Bible is the glory of God manifested in heaven and earth by means of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is much bigger than your salvation and mine, you see. <clears throat> and God's plans for the world are much larger than your salvation and mine. Within the last 150 years or so uh, in the church, the kingdom has been redefined and the gospel has been reduced to, well, how do, how do you get to heaven when you die? That's not the message of Jesus. Not that's the message of the early apostles. But if you heard many Western Christians only in the last few generations, you might get the idea that the Bible is chiefly about saving a few souls from the earth and getting them to heaven at some point. If this is the main message of the Bible, God certainly wasted a lot of ink because the Bible addresses many more topics than personal salvation. Fourth, if what I said in the third point is true, the fourth point follows. The church is, the church, though indispensable, is not God's chief concern in the earth. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Church is a translation of what Greek word? Ecclesia, the people of God in a particular locale under the oversight of leaders or elders, pastors. The Bible teaches that God in Christ shed his blood for this church. He rules in his church. He loves his church. But this local body, this church, is not identical to the kingdom of God. It's a part of the kingdom. When Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, he obviously did not mean seek first the church. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, but he obviously did not come preaching the church. Paul writes that one day Jesus will deliver the kingdom to the Father. Again, obviously he can't mean delivering just the church. He's delivering his reign and his rule. This means that Christian schools and businesses and politics and music and pro-life and family and campus and cultural and mercy ministries and EICC and CCL and the Alliance Defending Freedom are or certainly should be within the kingdom of God though they're not specifically the church. The church is the assembly of the faithful and they act as the church when they act faithfully wherever they are. But the kingdom is the sphere of Jesus Christ's rule and the church is only one crucial aspect of it. The kingdom, not the church, is the big issue. Fifth, and finally, 
God's objective is not merely to save sinners, but to redeem all of life and society and culture, the entire world. Paul writes that Jesus will rule in the present age until he subordinates all enemies except death itself. Read that, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. The writer of Hebrews states that all things have been placed under the Lord's authority. The sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. That's a direct quote from Cornelius Van Til and one of the most important quotes outside the Bible you will ever hear. The sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. Wherever sin goes, that's where redemption has to go. Everywhere. God is redeeming all that is sinful. The second Adam is winning back all that the first Adam lost in Eden. The gospel is a regal gospel, and the goal of the gospel is to bring the world under the authority of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of the kingdom. For too long, the church has bought into a dualism. That is a sacred, secular distinction that sees church and home life and Bible reading and evangelism as, quote, spiritual. But we tend to see education and technology and law and science and politics and economics as worldly and not as important. This dualism has surrendered vast cultural territories to unbelievers and to secularists. Ironically, many Christians complain about the condition of the culture, yet it has been our own dualistic failure that's permitted that secularization, that de-Christianization. In short, if you abandon the culture to the culture to the devil, don't be surprised when he takes you up on your offer. As heirs of the king, we're commanded to call the entire world to be reconciled to God and to Jesus Christ. The Great Commission requires that we preach the gospel, baptize and disciple all the nations for Jesus Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. One theologian wrote this, beautifully put. When we preach Christ, we are not just offering a happiness pill and hellfire insurance. We're asking people to join in the dominion mandate and come aboard the gospel train. Amen. That's what we're called to do. God's, if God's objective is to bring the entire world under the authority of Jesus Christ, then our commission must be to extend that kingdom beyond the four walls of the church, beyond the four walls here. The kingdom of God is God's great work in the earth. Now, this means, among other things, that some of you young people should enter the, quote, full-time Christian ministry as pastors and missionaries and teachers, which are sorely needed. But others of you should take up sales and medicine and go to law school and become software architects and homeschooling moms and get involved in music and others' politics and others' various business professions. There are no secular occupations as long as they are surrendered to Jesus Christ. None. None. You sell used automobiles for a living. If you do it according to the word of God for the glory of God, that task is no less important than the task of the preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you young ladies here will get married, marry a godly man and have children and train those children in the faith. That task is just as important as any missionary going anywhere in the world. This means most importantly as we close. You're not your own, Paul says. We're bought with a price. Jesus' precious blood. We're his kingdom people. He saved us to restore us to godly dominion. 
Our goal isn't our own leisure, our own success. Our objective is not to win more video games or meet more handsome guys or cute girls or even get the best GPA in school. Everything, and I do mean everything we do in life, should contribute to this one grand end, the kingdom of God. There is no higher calling than fulfilling the cultural mandate in extending the kingdom of God. Everybody got that? Thank you very much.